John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, John. Hi, oh, Todd. It uh, looks like from the, uh, from the camera angle and from the hat, you are on the road somewhere. I am. That's, that's all I do anymore is on the road. So yeah, I'm, I'm in New York right now on my way west. Well, I do hope the weather improves as you head west. Yeah, the weather's been bad, but I, I've had an accident I've been working on here in New York for a while. So, well, we're I guess not I going can to say I love New York. Yeah. Well, we're not going to talk about that accident. We're actually going to go back in time a little bit historically. We talked uh, after our last uh, recording that uh, maybe we should do another celebrity accident. And I thought, okay. Our last show actually featured the same kind of aircraft that Patsy Cline was in when she was killed in an airplane crash back in the 1960s. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any kind of details about that on the NTSB site because that was before the NTSB was created. And I thought, let's go a little bit further in the future. Let's go to uh, Wilson, not Wilson Pickett, but um, Otis Redding, who died in a plane crash uh, some years later. And it was a very brief one paragraph, something I, I saw on the NTSB site again. Not enough to really get our teeth into it. But then I thought, not too long ago, there was a famous picture, uh, Roy Doc Halliday, who was killed in an airplane crash. Sure enough, there is plenty of stuff, both in the accident report itself and in the public docket. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to talk in detail about this, because between those two, there's actually a, a wealth of insight as to what was going on here. And um, I'll just briefly introduce the crash. Uh, Doc Halliday, former pitcher, major league pitcher, who I believe is also a Hall of Fame pitcher, um, was uh, flying his own personal aircraft, an Icon A5 amphibious aircraft. And according to eyewitnesses, he was flying the aircraft in a rather aggressive way, doing low altitude uh, runs over boats and doing all sorts of maneuvers. During one of those maneuvers, after a uh, pitch up, went up about 300 feet, rolled over to the right, lost control of the aircraft, crashed in the water. And uh, the last thing that, that struck me about this is the Icon A5, which is the light sport aircraft, was actually equipped with a parachute system in an emergency can be deployed. But as it turns out, for whatever reason, um, 
Halliday did not follow the uh, procedures, pre-fight procedures, did not pull the pin out to activate the system. So even if he tried to pull the parachute, it wouldn't have worked. So there's a tragedy of errors in decision-making, which we'll get into later. But uh, what are your thoughts on you know, reading about this in detail? Well, you know, after reading all his exploits, uh, there's information in the report that talks about him flying under a bridge that's only 39 feet above the water, which is a, quite an interesting little challenge. And in uh, some comments from the man himself about this airplane flying like a fighter airplane. Well, it's a sport utility. It's it's not aerobatic, and you know here we go with with the with the decision making again that we see so often in accidents, a lack of the of good decision making. But what I found rather iconic was in the statement from his father. He said that his son, when he was teaching him to fly, the father was a pilot, was teaching him to fly. That the son exhibited good decision making. Well, I think that train got off the track somewhere along the line because, well, and towards the last several months of flying, I don't see any demonstration of good decision making. He's reckless. He's he's out there having a great old time, but that's not what you should be doing flying an airplane, especially a sport aircraft with this light and the structure is not designed for for aggressive tactics. And there's a similarity in and re, with respect to his father with what happened with John Denver. Uh, John Denver also had a father who was a pilot. And like Halliday's father, uh, the, the, both of their fathers were former military pilots. Halliday's father was a former airline pilot as well, very experienced, was talking with his son about flying for years. And toward the end of his life, he'd expressed some concern about Halliday and uh, his personal life, where apparently he was going through some personal issues with, with his marriage. And also, uh, he had been under some treatment before this accident for various kinds of uh, drug issues that he had. Former professional picture, had a number of injuries, and apparently um, he was uh, had been addicted to a number of, of drugs uh, prior to this. And the father was concerned and asked them, you know, about his flying and basically told him, look, you can't fly and do all the things that you're doing. And this particular aircraft, by the way, Halliday was not an inexperienced pilot. According to the NTSB, he had over 700 hours total, including uh, uh, 15 or so hours in the accident aircraft and about 50 hours total in this make and model. So he was not unfamiliar with this aircraft. He had taken delivery roughly four weeks before. So he was flying about on average three hours a week, three, four hours a week prior to the crash, which given the apparent range of this aircraft meant he was probably had flown the aircraft well over a dozen times between delivery of the aircraft and the crash. And uh, you know, one thing that struck me about his decision-making, and you mentioned it, John, not only did he fly under the bridge, he wrote in his logbook that he flew under this bridge he also posted on social media several days before his death about what he had done. He'd basically self-reported a clear violation of any number of FAA regulations. Well, I, I mean, this is another one of those accidents that we get to review and you just shake your head on, on, uh, on the events. Did he have a death wish? Did he want to commit suicide? 
uh, because he certainly was going in that direction. And fortunately, in a sense, in this case, we had multiple levels of information that we don't usually have. At the end of the accident, we had multiple eyewitnesses on the shore who noted he was flying sometimes as close as five feet above boats in the waterway he was flying over before the crash. And again, I don't know if he had a range ahead of time to fly this close to a vessel on the water, but that is a huge no-no. You don't fly over people unless they're explicitly a part of whatever you're doing. And certainly one would not do it in the sort of unplanned way that he was doing. And uh, the other couple of pieces of information we have, we have statements from the pilot himself. I mentioned the logbook entry. I mentioned his social media posting. He also had an aircraft, which although apparently didn't have, did not have an ADS-B uh, system to uh, output what was happening to the aircraft, there was an onboard system that was using GPS to track the aircraft's movements, which is how the NTSB was able to reconstruct the flight into the bridge that we are showing in the video version of this. This flight into the bridge happened about, I believe it was 12 days before the accident, which meant he did this roughly two weeks after he had uh, delivery of the airplane. No telling how many other times he did it, but even once is too much. Yeah. Well, it, it is a tragedy for whoever he left behind. Uh, I don't know if he had a family, wife or kids, but you know, he certainly had a parent. And uh, that, that is absolutely crazy. And, and, you know, the feeling I'm getting is we go through hundreds of reports and, and some of them we, you know, get just to the first page and it doesn't appear to be enough to put on the show. Uh, this decision-making and bad decision-making is appearing in, in many, many, many of these reports. It's, it's just, uh, what's going on? Now, know, in, this, in this report, um, we looked at the, uh, medical exam that, that happened, and that really jumped out at me because, and I'm going to have to try and read this because there were several drugs in his system. And according to the NTSB, each of the substances he had had impairing or potentially impairing by itself his ability to fly. Some of these I can pronounce, and forgive me in advance for mispronouncing some of them. In his system were um, psychoactive substances, multiple psychoactive su substances, including amphetamine. Zopidin, morphine, fluoxetine, and baclofen. Any one of those is a no-go zone for flying. And again, he had a documented history of drug issues and of, of drug treatment. Whatever treatment he had, had not uh, worked prior to the flight because he had these multiple things in the system. And looking at the probable cause, I read this in with this uh, drug issue in mind, the pilot's improper decision to perform aggressive, low-altitude maneuvers due to his impairment from the use of multiple psychoactive substances, which resulted in a loss of control. And I thought, now, this is incorrect. The loss of control happened well before he went into this airplane. It was a loss of personal control. And again, the demons of drug abuse are something that uh, the society as a whole has to deal with. But the things he was going through, the things he has put into his body beforehand, in my opinion, would have impaired his decision to even get into the airplane. Whether or not he was, uh, you know, of the right physical mind to uh, actually do the performance of what he was trying to do, 
just getting into the airplane under those circumstances with any drug is a just a, a, an accident waiting to happen. Unfortunately, this accident did happen. Unfortunately, it took his life. You know, I didn't see anything in the report that talked about uh, if he had any run-ins with either the FAA or his medical uh, doctor for his physical, FAA physical. And maybe that's why he downgraded to sports aviation to get away from having the physical. So that that report doesn't address that, but I I see that being a possibility. If he's had a history of of uh, drug use, maybe uh, the people in his circle, the FAA in, in his area, knew this and were a little well on him about it, and had not taken action yet, and he downgraded himself to go fly where the FAA is really not looking very hard. You know, this brings up a, an issue that I'm going to see if the NTSB talked about this. At the time of the accident, um, he definitely talked about his hours. Let me look and see if they had the number of uh, the, the kind of certification he had at the time of the accident. Because, again, he had been flying for several years, had been flying complex aircraft in the, in the past, aircraft where he would have had to have at least a private pilot license and go through a medical exam. And at the time of the event, pilot information he had a private certificate. Now, because of the rules that the FAA has now, you can have a level of certification below that, which if you're of a certain age and had had a, a physical exam, a, a medical exam by a designated medical examiner at some point in the past, you wouldn't have to take another one. Fact of the matter is, um, according to the public docket, he had stated to his physician in his previous exam that he had nothing going on that would prevent him from flying the aircraft. Now, maybe it was true at the time. Maybe he was not taking a single drug at that time. But it stands to reason that somebody with that kind of experience with flying would have known that if he had started taking those drugs afterwards, that's something you'd have to take care of before you get into an airplane again. His father, the former airline pilot and former military pilot who know, knew his son, suspected that he might have been doing so. And in a written statement, he said that he told his son, you cannot do the drugs and do the fly. So there was no failure to warn here. He was a grown man who was fully aware of his actions and had people around him, who I assume he trusted, who uh, knew better and tried to tell him to do better, but he didn't. Yeah, death wish. And I can't get into the whole psychology of what does someone who is at the pinnacle of their career, a major league pitcher who was a star for years, whose past is his career is over. He's about 40 years old. He has the rest of his life ahead of him. He was going through apparently personal difficulties and clearly uh, difficulties with, uh, with drugs of various types. What does a person do in that situation? Unlike the average person who has the average amount of resources, and the average number of connections, he was a person who apparently could do what he wanted when it came to fly. Money was not an impediment to buying his own airplane or flying airplanes. And in fact, um, it was said in some of the uh, public docket information that he had been doing things even before this, which were somewhat risky, doing long overwater flights in his uh, Cessna caravan, doing single pilot IFR, which we've talked about in previous shows, is a very high workload situation. Now, he had a private certification. Didn't say he was instrument rated. 
So it's not clear from reading the documents whether he was flying in IFR conditions without having proper IFR certifications. But again, risk-taking behavior was something that happened during the accident flight and was apparently happening well before the accident flight. Yeah, just a tragedy for the family. Just thank God he didn't take anybody with him. You know, just now, high, those, risk, high risk flying. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are flying aircraft right now who are certified. And if they're like the rest of society, a certain proportion of them will have issues, whether it's psychological issues, alcohol and drug issues, issues that will not allow you to fully focus on what's happening in the, in the airplane. Even in the best of circumstances, speaking personally, I have to do my best to put whatever issues I have outside the airplane, outside the airplane and keep them there until I'm finished flying. Doesn't matter if I have, you know, time pressures or I have to send in my taxes, whatever the case may be, whatever it is, I have to forget about it. Now, if you have these things happening in your life and you are demonstrating an ability not to put it to the side and you know this person, you know, and you're in a position to either stop them from flying or at least make them stop and think about it, by all means do so. Again, these are human issues. It's not a question of a moral weakness on the part of this, this uh, unfortunately late pilot. If one has an issue, whether it's a medical issue, that's not your fault at all, or something that is self-inflicted, be it alcohol, drugs, or whatever, or fatigue, or trying to impress the neighbors or whatever, things that are not compatible with safe flying, speak up, do something about it. It's not only safe flying, it's also in the, in the hangar, it's, it's uh, in all, of, all the elements of aviation. I mean, I had guys when when uh, I had a crew of mechanics working on airplanes, and and uh, you had to watch them all the time because you'd hear about messy divorces, you'd hear about problems, and that from from myself and a few of the other uh, first line supervisors that I worked with uh, collectively would keep uh, keep a tab on. Them. But I also know of other first line supervisors that never paid a bit of attention to it. And so it's, you know, it's everywhere in every element or every piece of society, like you said, but it's in aviation, as I, I say in my speeches all the time, we are our brother's keeper. We need to pay attention. And I say that basically with mechanics teaching pilots how to do a good walk around on their airplane because mechanics need to take care of the pilots so they understand what they're doing. And uh, we do see a lot of that. I do see a lot of that, but I hear oftentimes that that's not happening. So we have, I don't know whether it's not happening because of the pilot or pilot attitude or the mechanic and the mechanic's attitude. But the fact is if it isn't happening, thing can, uh, can, be, can be a detriment to, the, to our industry. And especially now at this point in time when so many new people come in. I mean, every single flight school in this country is chock-a-box full. Are you having trouble getting time? I mean, you just moved. I just moved. And fortunately for me, uh, this is a, uh, although it's a very busy area with a lot of training going on, uh, the flying club I'm in, they have a sufficient number of aircraft where I'm not having trouble uh, uh, getting an aircraft assigned. But uh, where I was before in Boston, 
there was quite a bit of action going on and uh, getting an airplane was more difficult. And I noticed that both here in Palo Alto area, in Boston and in Seattle, where I did some training, uh, there are a lot of a lot of younger people who are out there flying, obviously working on their credentials so they can move up the ladder and go into the airlines and do other things that they're flying. And you know, hats off to them. I wish them all the best. But that's something where, in the rush to do that, you got to do the right things in the right way. Now, one lesson that came from the Roy Halliday event is that he actually put on social media some of the things he was doing. That's a good thing. Talking about your flying, putting on social media. I've actually benefited greatly from a lot of younger people who have tips about how to deal with various problems. And I actually have been helped by that. On the other hand, we've seen some things, and we talked about one of those a few months ago, where the gentleman who deliberately crashed his airplane had all sorts of cameras rigged to the aircraft. His goal was to, I don't know, get YouTube hits. He ended up crashing in a national forest, hid the evidence from the federal authorities. I think he's serving prison time right now. If you see somebody, somebody you're flying with, somebody in your organization, a fellow trainee who is saying and doing something and putting it out there publicly, that's a good thing. If they're doing it accidentally, that's like, hey, look what I just did. And you realize that this is something that can get them in trouble, point it out to them. Now, if they do something that's really dangerous and illegal, don't just point it out to them contact the authorities. But the good thing about social media is a lot of the people who are under the age of 40, who are out there training, they have some sort of social media footprint, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever the case may be. And uh, this is something that you can use to further your own development as a pilot and also to, in a sense, check up on the people around you. You know, when I was at the board, we had... uh, uh, a number of accidents, a noticeable number, I don't know the number, a noticeable number uh, of charter operations, very small charter operations. And there would be an accident involving uh, one of their pilots. And when we went out and interviewed other, his peers essentially at the company or at the airfield, uh, a comment that often came back was, well, I knew that he was going to have an accident because I wouldn't fly with him. He, he was just a risk taker. He just had problems, whatever the problems were. And they mentioned it. But it never fed it into the company or into the system in some way so that uh, the, the appropriate person could deal with it. And, you know, maybe that's the snitch mentality. We don't want to, you know, turn somebody in. If you don't want to turn them in, talk to them yourself. Right? But get them help. You know, again, here we go with my preaching. We are our brother's keepers. Damn, I feel I feel like I, I have I should have a church. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, for the young people who are out there training or getting time, what have you, we know that it's a very, very serious investment on your part. And even if someone else is paying the freight for you to do that, we're talking tens or well over a hundred thousand dollars by the time you get to the level of 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 your profession that you want to get to. And uh, doing things like this publicly will put that in jeopardy. So, you know, even if you think you're snitching on somebody, think of it this way. You might be keeping them from from flushing 50 or 60 or $100,000 down a rat hole by calling them out on their stuff and getting them to go on the right path. Yes, without a doubt. Okay, I think we talked that issue to death. Well, it's time given the context of this for my next to last word. 
in that, uh, you know, looking at other people doing things, you say to yourself, how can somebody be so crazy? How could somebody do these things that they're doing? Well, you're not that person because you're sitting here reading in a comfortable chair in front of a screen, someone else's misfortune. Look to yourself. Look to yourself as to what have you done in your time as an aviation professional, pilot, mechanic, what have you, that you would uh, later on say, you know what, maybe that was not the smartest thing. Like one of the things I found out was that if I'm getting time on a simulator in order to build my uh, knowledge of how to fly an instrument-rated aircraft, there are strict, restri- there are strict um, prohibitions against drinking before getting in a real, real airplane. No prohibitions about a simulator. Now, yeah, it makes sense that you shouldn't do that. But you say to yourself, eh, I'm going to a party. I'm having a couple drinks. A couple hours later, I'm going to do the simulator. I'm within the regulations. Yes, you are within the regulations, but think twice. What kind of slippery slope are you putting yourself on? Getting just a little bit outside the regulations because you can get away with it. Think twice before you do it is all I have to say. Yeah, that becomes the norm. Breaking the regulations a time or two or three becomes the norm. We see that all over. You know, the airlines have a huge, huge uh, damage to airplanes, ground damage, because they work in congested spaces. So, on. and uh, uh, back years ago, we, I, I was involved with many projects that would look at how we had those ground damages. Some of them substantial, millions of dollars, and it was always a, a long-term rule breaking by the individuals involved. They got away with it. It made the operation go faster. They, you know, they didn't take a delay, whatever the reason, and then damaged an airplane. You get away with it, get away with it, get away away with it. And then you think it's the normal. And then someday you're gonna have to pay for all the all of that. Well, all right, my last word again. Here we go. If you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning, please. You know, do it at home or the hotel before you go to the airport. When you get to the airport, do it all again. When you get out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. And if you, uh, when you finally get in the air, put the head on the swivel because there's a lot of activity out there and uh, a lot of students. And you know, we just did, a, we had Dick Healing on and we did some uh, instructor accidents and we're going to do some more. We have about 10 years, or actually it's, it's uh, 11 years of data that uh, were pulled down and it's a lot of, of accidents in there that we can talk about. So we are going to start talking about those in the near future. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube... We're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. 
visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.